All right, so today, um, the passage that was read, if we're going to sum it up, maybe something like living in light of the end. And we might want to put it this way, that what you believe about the end, this is true of anything, what you believe about the end determines how you journey along the way. So Charles Dickens' famous Christmas carol, you may know this, I learned it from Mickey's Christmas carol as a kid, of course, same story that would come on every year, Mickey Mouse would act it out. Ebenezer Scrooge is introduced as kind of a stingy, grumpy old man. He ignores his family, he's rude to his community, he's selfish with his employees, especially that Bob Cratchit. And Bob Cratchit has Tiny Tim, who's his uh, uh, special needs child, hurting child, and Ebenezer Scrooge is just indifferent towards all the needs around him, especially of his employees. And in the story, as you know, Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, past, present, and in the book, I think it's called Yet to Come. We know that as Christmas future. Scrooge is troubled by his past. The ghost of Christmas past takes Scrooge back in time where his conscience starts to buzz a little bit. And then there's the ghost of Christmas present that shows him uh, Cratchit's house and Tiny Tim and the needs there. And of course, he's, he's really stung by that. But what really gets to Ebenezer Scrooge is when yet, the, the yet to come, the future, takes Scrooge on a journey on what his future is going to look like if he stays on this trajectory. It's a silent ghost, and he reveals the death of a very disliked man whose funeral is attended only by local businessmen because lunch is provided for them. Scrooge asks the ghost, can I, can I see any tenderness at all in the world? And he's brought to the house of Tiny Tim, where Tiny Tim has passed away, and there Bob Cratchit is mourning the death. The ghost then allows Scrooge to see that neglected grave. It's a tombstone that bears his name, and Scrooge, of course, says and pledges that he's going to change his ways. Very emotional for Ebenezer Scrooge. Having seen the end, Scrooge is going to make some changes in his life. He awakens on Christmas morning a changed man. He makes a large donation to charity, sends a turkey over to Bob Cratchit's house, as well as giving him a raise. He becomes something like a father figure to Tiny Tim. He becomes the embodiment of Christmas spirit. And that's what, of course, Charles Dickens is going after. Now, in that narrative of A Christmas Carol, what Dickens is showing is that the present life of Scrooge is shaped by his understanding of the end. And that's very similar to what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 12. He's showing us the end in order that it would shape our lives today. In a sense, theologians use a phrase that the church is an eschatological community. And what that means is we exactly what it says. We always look forward, we lean forward to the end, and that changes the way we operate as a community today. Now let me just say before we even jump into the passage, that if you're going to let the end shape the way you live today, that's going to be a countercultural idea. You don't think about the end in a secular world. You only think about the present and a little bit about the past. But our culture doesn't really think about death, never mind what comes after death. It's dark. We try to ignore death as much as we can. Uh, You can go, you know, in the ancient world, you probably couldn't go a month without seeing a dead body. In the modern world, you can go years and years and years as long as you want without even seeing a dead body. We're kind of told to put off what the end looks like. 
And it's very countercultural. You know, in Scripture we have ideas like, how about Ecclesiastes 7.2 that says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because the living will lay it to heart. The Bonnetty's paraphrase of that is, for every party you attend, you should probably attend a funeral because you'll learn a lot more at a funeral than you will a party. You learn the end. You learn what's coming for all of us. Good old death and taxes, as they say. And that shapes the way we live today. We are an eschatological community. And so it's very important that we live in light of the end. And that's what we're talking about here in this passage. Now, before we jump into the passage, we do want to talk about Jesus here is talking about when the master returns. The son of man, we're told, comes like a thief in the night. He's telling his disciples this. This, of course, is known as the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus In the Christian story, we find four big movements. It starts with creation in Genesis, where all things are good, and there's a certain harmony or shalom in the world. Think of it like a symphony, where all the instruments are moving together. That's what the word shalom means, harmony. There's a harmony in the world. People, animals, creation. It's glorifying God together like a harmony brings forth beautiful music. That's movement one. Movement two is fall. That's where sin enters the world, evil enters the world, and of course creation creation is torn asunder, as they say. So things don't operate the way they were created to operate. And then there's a movement called redemption. This is Jesus going to the cross. The prophets predicted this, that redemption movement. Creation, fall, redemption. The fourth one is restoration. And we find the fullness of restoration in pictures like the book of Daniel, a little bit in Ezekiel, Isaiah, and especially the book of Revelation where there's a new heaven and a new earth. And when you step back and you look at the entire story of the Bible, all that was lost in Eden is restored in the new Jerusalem several fold. God creates a garden, puts man in the garden. It's paradise lost. But when paradise is rediscovered, it's no longer a garden. It's now a city. And in the middle of a city, by the way, there's a what? A beautiful garden, you see? That's the story, cover to cover, of Scripture. The reason I say all this, in the Christian story, what really kicks off that restoration movement is the second coming of Jesus, the return of Christ. It's almost like the inaugural event of the end. And that's what's being talked about here in Luke chapter 12. Let me give you a couple thoughts about the second coming because you can't just throw phrases like this out without a little bit of qualification, right? First of all, in the Bible, the return of Christ is called a lot of different things. It's called, for example, the advent. That's a word that's used, advent. Um, It's called parousia is the Greek word, a word for arrival. In Christianity, you might hear phrases like first and second advent. First advent, of course, is Christmas. That's our Jesus coming into the world. Second advent is the return of Christ. And by the way, when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, they would often conflate these two things. They conflated them for a reason, by the way. They saw them almost as one event, that Christ would come. So you have verses like this, right? Isaiah uh, 9, for example. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government is upon his shoulders. He is called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And so the first advent, the child is born. And then, of course, the government's going to be on his shoulders, which is a little bit more associated with the return of Christ. 
So I like to think of it this way, not original with me, but when we used to drive up north, my family and I drive up to the Green Mountains of Vermont, when you looked way out in the distance, you have, it looked like one big mountain out there, doesn't it? You ever look at a mountain in the distance? It looks like a really big mountain. And then when you get right up close to it, you go, oh, that's two mountains. It's two peaks, you know? Isaiah sees one mountain. But our apostles, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke's not an apostle, nor is Mark, but you get my point. The writers of the New Testament, they would see the two peaks. They saw things a little more clearly. It's also called, uh, and the early church actually had a word for the return of Christ. They called it Maranatha. That's a word they would say to each other. They'd look at each other and say, Maranatha, which means, come Lord Jesus. Second to last verse in the Bible talks about this. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Now for some reason I feel a need to say what I'm about to say here. The return of Jesus is a Christian teaching. It's not a Baptist teaching. You're like, wow, Baptist church believed that Jesus is going to return and make the... All Christians believe that Jesus will return and judge the world. The Nicene Creed, fourth century, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. All denominations affirm the second coming. Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Western Protestants, all. We quibble about how these events will go down and what order they might take place and things like that, but all affirm that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Can you be a Christian and deny that Jesus will return? That's like being a member of the Green Party and denying that you you believe in global warming. It's kind of core to what it is. It's like saying, I'm part of the Tea Party, but I want higher taxes, you know? I got one from the left and the right for you there. There comes a point where what you believe cuts so against the narrative and the story of what the platform is that you have to call into question the faith to begin with. So the second coming of Christ is a Christian teaching. It's something that for 2,000 years the church has anticipated across all denominations that Jesus, as an Nicene Creed says, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the truth of the second advent, one more thought before we hit our passage here, it's got to shape the way that we live today. In secular humanism, the highest goal is human flourishing. That's the highest goal, okay? They do not believe there's anything after death. They don't really think about it that far. And so human flourishing is the highest goal. So for example... That could be individual human flourishing. I want to make as much money as I can and be as happy as I can. Or it could be the world flourishing. we got to contribute to the world to make it a better place, which is very noble, by the way. I want to be clear. We value Christian human flourishing as Christians, but that is not the highest goal. We value that, but that's not the greatest good in the world. The greatest good is the glory of God, which would include, to a large degree, human flourishing. So here, here's the difference. This is, uh, this is how you approach marriage, right? In secular humanism, you say, well, are you happy? Is your spouse happy? Are they meeting your needs? Very good questions. But in Christianity, we would say, how is the marriage glorifying God? What about work? You would look at a secular humanist and you would say, is your work fulfilling? Are you happy with your work? Is your work helping other people? All good questions. I ask these questions. You should ask these questions. But Paul doesn't really ask those questions. Paul says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We have different narratives because we have different ends. 
If Ebenezer Scrooge believes that there is no real end, and when he dies, that's all there is, he should pay Bob Cratchit as little as he possibly can and don't want to put another piece of coal on the fire. I wouldn't either. But if there is an end, and someday you stand and there's some judgment, of course, that's going to change the narrative of your life. That's what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 12. And you have four servants we're going to get into in just a moment on this. So how does the second coming of Jesus, the second advent, the coming of Christ, whatever language we want to use, how does that shape the way we live today? I'll give you three ways. First one's the longest, and then we'll just add on two points from later on in the text that would be helpful, I think. So first of all is this. The second coming encourages us to be faithful. Encourages us to be faithful to God. Verse 35, I want you to pick up Three pictures of faithfulness here. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him and once he knocks. Now, oh, by the way, Luke does this. If you want to see a literary device in Luke, I love when he does this. It's very common that Luke has Jesus giving three metaphors or stories. The first two are like boom, boom, and then he teases out the third. You know, Luke 15, there's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then there's the lost son. And the lost son is really long. That third one gets teased way out. You have the same thing here. Be dressed, ready for action. Let your lamp be burning, number two. Be like the men that are welcoming back their mass. He teases that one out a bit. That's a literary device that Luke likes to use. That's what Jesus does here in this passage. Three pictures of being ready, of being faithful. Number one, there's one of dress. Be dressed ready for action. Literally, it reads, keep your waist girded about. And I know that's weird language. It actually has the idea of being circled and tucked in. And that's because in the ancient world, they would wear those, those long clothes. And if you wanted to be ready for action, you, could, you can't just sprint with those, you know. You have to bring them up like this in advance, and you tuck that, that hanging uh, from the, whether it's a toga or, or, or whatever. You bring it up and you tuck it into the belt. That's the picture here. And a lot of scholars believe this is actually an echo from the Passover. They would take the Passover meal with those garments tucked in. You can read about it in Exodus 12. And that signifies you got to be ready to leave Egypt. you got to be ready to go. You want to be faithful. You want to be watching. You want to be ready. The first picture we get of being faithful and ready for the coming of Christ is that our garments are up and they're tucked in. We can get up and sprint if we have to at moment's notice. Number two, the lamp is constantly burning. Keep your lamps burning. Now, of course, if you have kids, you've done this. Or your parents did this. Where your kids are coming home, might be 11 or 12. Maybe they're, they're out with friends and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to stay up until they get here, so you leave the light on. That's the idea. Or you have a guest coming from far away. And, of course, you leave, you leave the light on. You leave it burning. In the ancient world, it would be the oil lamps with a little wick that would come up. The third one is the wedding feast in verse 36. Again, the men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast. The wedding feast is a major social event, probably the, the main social event in the ancient world. These wedding feasts would go anywhere from a couple of days to an entire week, and you never really knew when they were going to end. It's like a party that just kind of, when it died out, everybody went home. 
And so they would, they, would, they would go to the wedding feast, and then at some point they're going to come home, and the servants in the house here in the story are to wait for the master. They're supposed to be awake and ready for the master. We're told that the, the master's going to come home at night in, in what's called the, uh, uh, the, the night watch. The Jews would divide the night into three. The Romans divided it into four. We're not sure which one Jesus is talking about here. Whatever it is, it's the middle of the night, and the servants need to be ready. Now, let me say this kind of as a side. Jesus is calling us to be faithful through three things. I just want to point these out before we go back to the the story. Number one, we got to be faithful through ignorance. And I don't mean the world's ignorance. I mean our ignorance. Verse 39, if you give it a read, says this. But know this, that, the master, that if the master of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. It's the verse that Andy read. The word here for uh, breaking in is the word that means to dig. They would dig through the side of those mud houses, you know. And if the master knew when the, when, when the, the thief was coming, what does that tell us? That tells us that we don't know when Christ is going to return. No one knows the hour. No one knows the day. And despite Jesus plainly saying this, like no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not the Son of Man, only the Father, despite very clear statements, still people like to set dates for some reason. You can read about the Millerites in the 19th century, a New England minister that set dates, wrote 16 articles to a local paper. People started selling their farms and things like that. I think the date he set was like October 22nd, 1844, or something along those lines. And of course, that was met with great disappointment. Charles Russell, this is the Watchtower Society, predicted 1874. Then it was 1914, 1915, 1918, 1920. And every time it doesn't happen, there's another date that's tacked on. When I was a kid, 88 reasons why the rapture is going to have in 1988. Harold Camping from... Family Bible Radio predicted 1994. And then when Jesus didn't return, what did he do? He added, oh, oh, it's got to be something like 2011. And that's one that I actually lived through. And I can remember 2011 when there was talk and the news about this. People selling their farms and really doing reckless things, anticipating the day that Jesus would come. All those date predictors have similar things in common. Number one, they ignore the clear teaching of Scripture that no one knows the date. That doesn't just mean that you can't know the date. It means it's impossible to know the date. We press words, we press phrases, we count every 15th word to find some Bible code or something like that. With all due respect, usually people that promote this stuff don't know the difference between a Hebrew manuscript and an old Danbury Times or something like that, you know. Paul tells Timothy, watch out for the wrangling of words become obsessed with nitpicky things like that and it becomes very dangerous. Don't be hoodwinked by these things, friends. So number one, I just wanted, right? We're going to have to trust through ignorance. We don't really know exactly when Christ will return. This is another one. Number two, we're going to be faithful through delay. Did you notice there's a delay motif here in the passage? When Andy read, for example, verse 15, but if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, And he begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink. Now he's wrong to beat the male and female servants. What he's right about is the master very well made delay. (laughs) 
in all these parables, there's a motif of delay. Some people are bothered by this. The narrative goes something like this. Jesus told the church he would return. And it's 2,000 years and he still hasn't returned. Therefore, he lied about that or he didn't really know what he was talking about. And I would say, just read the story and it says, there's a very good chance he's going to delay. There's a delay motif here. My master is delayed. That means that it could be a considerable period of time. Jesus never said that his coming would come within the lifetime of the apostles. He never said it would come within 300 years. He never said it would come within 10,000 years. And if we know our Old Testament history, this really shouldn't bother us. What's the passage I read earlier? Oh, Isaiah 6, uh, 9, unto us a child is born. You know, Isaiah makes it sound like it just happened. You know when it happened? Like 800 years after that, (laughs) you know? That's how the apostles and prophets wrote. We're reading this like Westerners instead of understanding what the authors actually met. All right, so number one, we're going to have to be careful. We're going to we're gonna have to work through ignorance. We're going to have to work through this delay. And we're also going to have to be faithful through skepticism, through skepticism. This idea that Christ will return and judge the world, uh, there's an assumption by modern people that, that people in the ancient world just believe this stuff. Uh, modern people have a bad view of the ancient world. We think ancient people just believe silly things. Well, some of them believe silly things. Some people today believe silly things, right? People in the ancient world were intelligent. They were skeptical. And believe me, when Jesus steps out and looks at a crowd and says things like, someday I'm going to return and I'm going to be on a white horse with a tattoo running down my thigh and I'm going to have a sword and fire is going to come out of my eyes, the people didn't go, that makes sense. That's that's completely reasonable, and I think I'll follow this guy. They were as suspicious about that as you and I would be about that. People in the ancient world weren't dumb. They didn't think this stuff happened all the time, you know? Remember, the story of Christianity is not that people always rise from the dead and Jesus happened to be one of them. The story of Christianity is nobody rises from the dead, very rare, and Jesus was one of them. People in the ancient world didn't just believe that all these miracles and kinds of things happened. They believed it was as ridiculous as we might today. It's outside of our plausibility structure. It's outside their plausibility structure. The early church is going to struggle with doubts. The modern church is going to struggle with doubts. There's going to be a certain skepticism that we have to push our hearts through. And the world is going to be skeptical about these things. So number one, we're going to be faithful through our own ignorance. We don't know when it's going to happen. Number two, we understand there's going to be a delay. There's no reason Jesus won't take 10,000 more years to return. Nothing says he couldn't do that. It could be longer. And number three, we're going to have to be faithful through the skepticism around us and maybe even a little bit of it in us. Now, what's the point of those three metaphors? The dress, the light, the wedding feast? Well, it's very pointed right in verse 40. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect you do not expect. Be ready. Be ready, by the way, doesn't mean we, we sky gaze. It doesn't mean, you know, you're supposed to be staying up at night, looking into the sky, waiting for Jesus to return or something like that. Remember in Acts chapter 1, that's what the disciples did. Jesus ascended to heaven. They stood there looking up into the sky and an angel said, what are you looking at? Get busy. Go about the master's business. This idea of staying awake is metaphorical. It's spiritual. And it means to be, to be faithful 
until we see Christ face to face. Now, here's the example of the servants. And we're going to spend the most time on this point again. Verse 41, Peter asks a question, and then Jesus gives an example of four servants. Let's mark them out. First of all, there's a faithful servant. The Lord said, Who then is faithful and wise manager, whom whom his master set over the household to give him a portion at the proper time? So Jesus here is talking about the chief steward of the house. And that chief steward is responsible to give rations or portions to all the other servants. He might give it day by day, maybe on a weekly basis, could be on a monthly basis. But a faithful servant is one that shares those rations with other people. And he's faithful through the delay. The master takes a little bit more time than anticipated, and he's faithful. And that's the point of being a faithful servant. That we're faithful to Christ even through delay, even not knowing when the master is going to return. If you know the Odyssey by Homer, it chronicles 10 years of Odysseus and his return after the Trojan War. And he has a wife named Penelope. And while he's gone, there are suitors that are constantly trying to take her hand as well as the household and her money. And Penelope, though aggressively sought after, is aware that she'd be breaking her vows. So Penelope there is faithful. She's faithful, by the way, through the three things that we talked about. That's why I find the story interesting. She doesn't know when he's going to return. There is a long delay that she does not anticipate, and there's a lot of skepticism because everybody around her is saying he's dead. He's not coming back. And, of course, he returns, Odysseus, after a 21-year absence, and her name becomes associated with the word loyalty and faithfulness in the ancient world. And here's the blessing. The blessing, verse 37, listen. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will serve them. Those that are faithful to Christ until the return or until we die and see him face to face, the word blessed here is a beautiful word. The Greek word is makarios. Highest kind of blessing you can have. In the ancient world, it was a word that was used for the Greek gods. Hey, you know the island of Cyprus in the ancient world? That was called Hamakria, which is the same word you have here. Because war would take place in Greece, but you couldn't get the Cyprus to invade it. It was called the Happy Island or the Blessed Island because that's a place of peace and a place of joy. That's the word that Jesus uses here. Blessed are, are you when the master comes home and finds you faithful. Now get this. When the master comes home and finds the servant faithful, what does he do? He himself puts on the apron and the servant sits down and the master now is serving dinner to the servant. This is utterly ridiculous. Like you and I are in this egalitarian society where every once in a while your boss will put on the apron on work day and he'll serve the people hot dogs. and th- This never happens in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you have a master, you have a servant, everybody keeps their place and nobody steps out of line. The master is so blessed and encouraged by the faithful servant, he does the Psalm 23 thing. He prepares a table for him. Beautiful picture of someone entering into the glory of the Lord. The second one here is an evil servant. And he does a sin of commission. He's unfaithful in the sense that he starts to beat people. He beats the men, he beats the women, he takes advantage of them, he steals their rations. And we're told that the master cuts him to pieces. Probably some kind of metaphor here. 
The third one is the negligent servant, verse 47. And the servant who knew his master, uh, knew his master's will, but did not get ready for act or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. So here is one that knows what's right, but just ignores what they know to be true. In other words, they, they are rocked to sleep by the mundane. Uh, Matthew puts it this way. In the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, giving in marriage, and then the flood came. Now, why does Matthew say that? He's not describing like evil things. Nothing wrong with eating and drinking and giving in marriage. Those are good things. The point is they were unconcerned about anything in the future that related to God. The servant is rocked to sleep by the mundane, rocked to sleep by the ordinary. There's an old fable uh, about Satan talking to three of his demons. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to trip this one person up. And the first demon says something like this. says, Satan, I'm going to tell him there is no God. Satan laughs at that and says, you don't really think they're going to believe that there is no God. That'll never work. Demon number two. Ah, I'll tell him there is no judgment. And Satan says that might work, but very doubtful because people in their conscience know that there is a judgment to come. And the third demon gives a little bit more thought and says, I'm going to tell him there's no hurry. And Satan says, ah, bingo, you got him. (laughs) Years ago, there's an old western road, wagon track on the side, And it was a sign that read, avoid this rut or you'll be in it for the next 25 miles. (laughs) The plain, the ordinary, the mundane. And that's what's happened to the negligent servant. The final one is the ignorant servant. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. This is someone, and notice what it says. They just, they didn't know. Now, they didn't do a lot of seeking either. (laughs) So there's some responsibility, but they don't know. Sometimes people are out of step with God's will because it's very willful ignorance, you know, very willful acts, rather. Some people just need discipleship, need to be told, need to be encouraged. And that's the case here. Faithful to the end. The very first thing to prepare and think about the coming of Christ is to be faithful to that which God has called us to. Number two, the second coming, encourage us to persevere, to persevere. Look at verse 49. Or rather, yeah, uh, 49. I've come to cast fire on earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress, it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, Jesus could have said a lot of things, and the point he's making is that as we wait for Christ, there's going to be a need to persevere through adversity, through adversity. There's going to be conflict along the way in various relationships that we need to work through. You see this in Hebrews 11, of course, at the extreme, Cain killing Abel, the sons of Abraham are at odds, Joseph and his brothers, but we're told to persevere and be faithful If I could just put this in the vernacular, there are people that will not be happy with your faith. They're not going to be as supportive of your faith. It's going to happen at work. 
It happened at home. It can happen in community. It can happen anywhere. It happened to Moses. Where the passage says, because of Moses, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. She wasn't very supportive of this thing. Happened to Jesus. By the way, it happened to Jesus with his own mother and father. They're godly people. And he had to look at them and say, I must be about my father's business. Happened to Joseph. Happened to Joseph, by the way, Mary's husband. To stay married to a woman that everybody thought was unfaithful. He's going to have to bear shame. And the music in the background of that is his father is not going to be happy about him doing this. Faithful. Perseverance. Number three, the second coming encourages us to action. Encourages us to action. Last point, verse 54. He said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And what that means is, and if you look to the west in uh, this part of the world and you see a cloud, that meant the rain is coming from that Mediterranean area, of course. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. The south wind in the desert means you're going to get scorching heat. It's going to come. It's on its way. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, <clears throat> but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, he is calling the people to action. You've got to act on what we know is coming. And finally, the last part of the passage, verse 57, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. What's the point of that? Jesus is saying, just like when you know you're guilty, you want to negotiate before you get to the judge, make sure you take action in your relationship with God. Don't be lulled to sleep by the mundane. I love this idea of reading the storm clouds. You know, and, and it, was, it was a story that happened in December of 2004. It was like 7 o'clock in the morning here. It was a massive, hurricane, a massive earthquake. It was a 9.0 on the Richter scale, some six miles below in the Indian Ocean. They tell me that it was the, the worst earthquake they felt in something like 40 years. 620-mile section of the tectonic plate shifted. Imagine 600 miles shifting like that. I read that the powerful earthquake released into the Indian Ocean something like a million atomic bombs. That was the force of it. The force was so powerful that it moved an island 100 feet. And the energy caused the water to be displaced. The water would reach speeds of something like 600 miles an hour. The waves just up at the shore were 50 feet high. You may have remembered this. It hit Indonesia, Thailand, India, uh, Sri Lanka, several other small countries. It left 150,000 dead. But you know, there's an interesting story within that story. And it's a story of a little girl named Tilly Smith. Tilly Smith was vacationing. She's from England. And she was on the beach that day. And she began to watch the water. She recently heard about tsunamis from one of her teachers at her local elementary school. And she became concerned about some of the patterns that she saw on the water. She became frightened and she went and told her parents. And her parents seemed to believe her and they spread an alarm all throughout the beach. There was about a hundred, we're told, on the beach that day. 
And on that day, that beach evacuated because of her warning. Tilly received scores of awards, an invitation to the UN, because she saw the signs and she read the storm that was on its way. She could see what was coming and she shared. We don't know the day, we don't know the time, but Jesus says, stay awake. Be like little Tilly. Read the signs. Watch. And then, of course, never put your relationship with God on hold. That's what that little passage about settling with the accuser is. There is nothing more important than your relationship with God. And to be lulled to sleep by the world, to not turn to him, to not settle accounts that need to be settled, to say, oh, I'll put my faith in Christ down the road, we're told it's a very dangerous thing to do. The writer of Hebrews says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Amen. We at Ridgefield Baptist Church, we're a little bit like Tilly on the beach, aren't we? We don't know what time things are coming, but we kind of read in the scriptures and we see that everybody has to give an account before the Lord. And so we encourage ourselves first and also our friends and neighbors, settle that dispute before you meet the judge. Put your faith in Christ. Turn away from your sin. Make, make the relationships right. Your relationship with God is way too important to ignore. Be in a hurry in regard to that. Second Advent teaches us and encourages us to immediate action. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for encouraging and loving us. Bless us now as we sing. We sing about the church and the importance of the church in the world. God, I just ask that you'd help us to be that eschatological community you want us to be. We want to be people that live in light of the end. Help us not to ignore the end, but to bring it into focus so it can shape our lives today. Scrooge received a little bit of grace, and it changed his life. We've received an abundance of grace. Pray that would change our lives even more. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.